Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Hudson Belk, which means I'm not Sid Druin. I'm not the senior pastor here, but I'm thankful for the privilege to be able to, to preach this morning um, and uh, to share God's word with you. If you've been with us the last few weeks or even the last year, you know we've been going through the life of David. And as Sid's away, this last week and, and this week, we are looking at two different psalms that David wrote. Last week we looked at Psalm 19, this week Psalm 133. And uh, we had a shorter passage, and I'm hoping a little shorter sermon. We'll, we'll see. Now, in 26 days it starts. The countdown is on. Do you know what's in 26 days? Scott Hooks. A competitive person like you doesn't know what's in 26 days? The Olympics. July 23rd is the opening ceremonies for the Olympics. And I was just talking to my neighbor yesterday. We're pumped up. We can't wait for the Olympics. One, I just love watching sports. Two, I love hearing the backstories of the athletes who've worked all their lives for this one moment. Plus, you're watching sports that I never watch but once every four years. But more than anything, what I love about the Olympics, that as a nation, we can come together and we're all on the same team. We're rooting for the same team. I love that aspect of unity, which is partly why I love the story of the Miracle on Ice. Does anybody know Miracle on Ice? 1980, to give a little background, we're still in the middle, politically, in the middle of the Cold War with high tensions between the United States and the Soviets. And there's a lot of uncertainty. In the Middle East, there's uncertainty. There's nuclear threats. We had gone through Watergate. There was economic troubles. Uh, there was high inflation, unemployment. We had gas lines, uh, energy crisis. In a lot of ways, America was feeling fragile. And then you had the sports side of the story. Um, going into these Olympics in hockey, the Soviets dominated. They were the dream team. This is 1980. They had not lost uh, an international or Olympic game since 1968. They dominated. Uh, and they, they went into these Olympics and won, easily won their first five games. And then there was the Americans. Six months, pri six months prior, these college athletes were put together to form Team USA. There wasn't much expectation for them at all. They were actually the seventh seed going into the Olympics. And a month prior to this game, the U.S. had played the Soviets and got dominated. 10-3, no contest. And here, America found themselves in the semifinals of the Olympics against the Soviets. And through three periods of play, as the clock struck zero, ABC announcer, announcer Al Michaels said, Do you believe in miracles? Yes. The U.S., this bunch of college athletes, beat the almighty Soviets. And they went on to win the gold. 
and this little hockey game just, well, actually, I don't even know how many player, hockey players there are in hockey, but however many were on the ice brought the nation together. People look back and say how just in a small way, that victory gave America a sense of unity, a sense of hope when there was a sense of fragility and uncertainty. We all love unity, right? We all want unity. This past year, we've heard about unity on ball fields, in the political discussions. It's often talked about, but seldom realized. And it's even a big issue for the church, and the Lord speaks about His desire for unity. So in our psalm this morning, Psalm 133, that indeed is the theme. As King David wrote the Song of Ascent, the song would have been sung as God's people would have gone to worship in Jerusalem in the temple. They would have sung this very hymn that we're looking at this morning in Psalm 33. Unity matters to God. And so I want us to quickly look at just four points from this psalm. We want to see that the blessing of unity, the difficulty of unity, the object of unity, and then the pillars of unity. So the blessing, difficulty, object, and pillars. Now the blessing of unity. As we look at this psalm, it starts off, Behold, look, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And then it ends again affirming the blessing of this unity. The unity of God's people has been and will continue to be a sign of God's blessing. He brings unity. And in this psalm, we just have the first line and the last line. And between that, David just gives us two metaphors. He gives the metaphor of a picture of oil being poured down on Aaron the priest. And the second one, sorry, I don't know what I'm doing. The second metaphor is this northern mountain of Mount Hermon bringing refreshing rain or dew upon the southern mountain, Mount Zion. What did David, what could David be telling us by just giving us these two metaphors? As he talks about his desire for unity and he gives us these two metaphors, what's, God, what's David getting at and what's God telling us? Well, the precious oil being poured down on the beard of Aaron all the way down, lavishly being poured down all the way into his clothing, onto his collar, would have reminded God's people that we are unified to God. We are unified in holiness. When a priest was anointed with oil, it signified him being set apart for a distinct purpose, set apart for God. And so this metaphor reminds us that we have been set apart for God. Like the oil coming down and flowing on Aaron's beard, God's grace comes down to us. It seeks us out and sets us apart. Peter picks up on this very language in 1 Peter 2. He said, speaking to the church, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession that you might proclaim His excellencies, how great He is. Because He who called you out of darkness and has brought you into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now... You have received mercy. And then there's the metaphor of the dew um, of the mountain of Hermon coming down. And this metaphor points us to the refreshment and the provision when God's people do dwell in unity. 
Mount Hermon was one of the tallest mountains in Israel. It was on the northern side of Israel, and it was often snow-capped and received plenty of rain, tons of rain. And the picture here is that the, the rain of Mount Hermon is coming and bringing prosperity, provision, and refreshment to Mount Zion, which was a dry land where God's temple was. Again, this metaphor picturing us that fellowship and unity of God's people brings refreshment, brings renewal, like rain to dry land. Both of these, I want you to notice that both metaphors, there's something coming down. With Aaron, what's coming down? The oil's coming down. And with the mountain, the rain is coming down. God's grace comes down, clearly reminding us that unity comes from the Lord. And it comes from the God who is the triune God. I love this quote from Dane Orlin. He says, Few human joys run deeper than real unity. To know and to be known by others, to enjoy a shared heart in some endeavor, to sense the deep uh, renaissance of oneness that comes from loving and being loved. This is a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth, when all divisiveness, strife, and harsh disagreement will melt away. To be in meaningful unity with others is in fact a reflection of the triune God himself, who dwelt eternally in perfect unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Truly, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And yet this isn't something we always experience. Actually, if we look at the history of Israel, this is not a typical picture of Israel. Israel did not experience continual unity. They did in brief periods, but never perfectly. As we've even, over the last year, studied the life of David, we know that when David took over as king, Israel was everything but united as Saul and his people were pursuing David. That is often not the norm. And why is it not the norm? Well, the metaphor actually helps us understand this as well. Why is it not the norm? Well, we look at Aaron. Aaron reminds us that we need a mediator. It reminds us of our vertical relationship between God and man. We need to be reconciled to God. Aaron reminds us that we need a representative. Why? Because man has been alienated from God. Our root problem is our sin. And because of our alienation with God, that vertical relationship, our horizontal relationships with man are also broken. Some commentators look to the second metaphor of these two similar things, mountains, in two different parts of Israel, who one was rural, big, tall, strong, the other urban, small, dry, very different. And where in human relationships our differences often make us repel against each other, barriers create um, disunity, not unity. Here we get a, a picture of these two different mountains coming together, sharing resources, bringing unity. Because our alienation with God also affects our broken relationships with one another because we have this root problem called sin. From the very beginning, in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, what happened? Adam and Eve, they realized they were naked, they were afraid, they hid, 
They start blame shifting in their relationships. And their first, one more generation, their sons, what do we find? Murder, discord, disunity. Sin brings disunity and discord. It brings alienation with God. Karl Marx actually held that one of the fundamental problems with the world was deep alienation. And that's true. But he didn't go deep enough. He didn't take into account that the deeper problem of the human condition is not classes of people. It's not just the working class being separated from the fruits of their labor. He did not take into account the separation of man to the triune, sovereign, creator God. He didn't take into account man's sinfulness and man's sinful ways of relating to one another. He didn't consider pride or greed, envy or lust. And so it couldn't fix the ultimate alienations that exist in life. Sinclair Ferguson explained that time revealed these flaws. It became increasingly clear in communist states that there was deep-dyed and high-reaching corruption. Instead of bringing reconciliation, communism simply continued to sustain human sinfulness. Alienation remained because sin remained. And no matter what the theory we look to, ultimately alienation and what causes it must be dealt with at its core. In our passage, if we, looked at, if we look at that last line, David wrote, For there the Lord commanded the blessing. Where is there? In this passage, there is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where this blessing comes. But if we remember the story of David, in 2 Samuel 11, it was in Jerusalem. It said, in Jerusalem, David stayed and remained while all his warriors went out to battle. It was in Jerusalem that David looked upon Bathsheba and brought discord, disunity to the kingdom. And yet, in our passage, David is now saying it's there, it's in Jerusalem, where God actually brings them back into unity in the presence of God, which ultimately points us back to Jerusalem, where it was there that Jesus came, right? Jesus came, he took on flesh, went to Jerusalem and was undone on a hill called Golgotha outside the city walls. He was broken. He was torn apart. Why? So that we could be united. You know, on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His relationship was broken so that he could reconcile us to him. His love was displayed of giving his life so that we can have life as a body together. And guess what? He accomplished this unity and it will endure forever. This blessing of being united in Christ for God's people is something we will experience forever. Catherine and I have some friends who have one son and anytime they're talking about other Christians, a lot of times they'll refer to, yeah, he's part of our forever family. We're, we're going to hang out with some of our friends and they're part of our forever family. And what they were trying to instill in their son is we're a part of a unity that will last forever. They're part of our family forever. And what's the object of that unity? It is Jesus Christ himself. In the Old Testament, in this psalm, that place of unity would have been the presence of God in the temple as God's people came together. But now we see it's in Christ, 
It comes down. Christ came down to us. This is something that Christ accomplishes for us. We don't accomplish it. Reconciliation and redemption are the works of God. And that's what Paul gets at in Ephesians 2. He says this, that in Christ Jesus, those who were far off, this was Jews and Gentiles, they were far off. They were brought near. They were brought near by the blood of Christ. Let me find my... Um, for in Christ is our peace. For he has made us both one, and he has broken down in his flesh that dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one man in the place of two, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. What's Paul saying? Where there is alienation, where there is disunity, Christ has accomplished unity for us in the cross. It was done for us. And so for us, it's through repentance and putting our faith in Christ, resting in what Christ has done, that we find true unity in the people of God. So you see, what I want us to understand is unity is actually a byproduct. Unity is something that's achieved for us. It's supernatural. Like our psalm says, it came down. And we find it by attuning our hearts and our desires and understanding that who we are is unified to Christ. I love, again, this A.W. Tozer quote that really brings this point out. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are all one chord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking to Christ, are, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscience and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. What Tozer is bringing out is true unity comes from looking not to each other, but looking to Christ and our unity to Christ. And this was Jesus' very prayer. Jesus in John 17 was praying that Psalm 133 would be true for us. And I'd encourage you later today to read John 17 and hear Jesus' prayer to his Father that we would be unified. When Jesus prayed, I pray that they all will be one, just as you and I, speaking of the Father, of, are one, and as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. May they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love and, and that you love them as much as you love me. And that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus is praying that we might share in the oneness of that love that's experienced in the Godhead. That as much as the Father loves Jesus, that he loves us, and that that would unite us. And so to finish, I want to ask the question, what does that look like? What are some um, characteristics? What are some, as I said, pillars to us being unified? What does Scripture have to say? Ephesians 4 talks about this very point. And Paul says that with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, and we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in this bond of peace. 
Paul says that with patience and humility and gentleness, if we're going to be unified as a church, a local church, and the greater universal body of Christ, it takes humility and patience. Patience with one another and humility to take our eyes off ourselves, allow ourselves to be known. Patience, grace, and gentleness is needed. I mean, we're being unified with a bunch of sinners. We're a mess, right? And we have issues. And we're calling each other to look to Christ, to live out of the union we have with Christ. But that will take patience. And honestly, that's something we struggle with. I know I struggle with that. I love the idea of unity and loving the church and being together. And yet I also often find myself discouraged and frustrated and often with myself. You can ask Catherine, but many times after a Bible study, she'll find me kind of walking off with my head down, beating myself up because it didn't go perfectly, thinking that it wasn't the ideal. And oftentimes, I have a picture of the ideal and I don't love the actual people God's placed in my life. Rather than loving the people God's put in front of me, loving them and just pointing them to God and His truth and His grace, I don't. But God offers me to come, rest, rest in my grace. I love the Diedrich Bonhoeffer quote. I keep saying I love all these quotes. I guess I'm just giving you all the quotes that I love and I hope they're helpful. But Diedrich Bonhoeffer says this, He who loves his dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of, of the latter. I need to hear that. And maybe you do too. We need patience and humility. Humility to look to Christ. Humility to take our eyes off ourselves and to engage in the body of Christ. So unity will take grace and patience. And really, it takes a, a belief that the church is worth it, that God's grace is found here in the church. We have to believe that. And so the second point, the second pillar is truth. Paul in Ephesians 4 says that the saints are to attain the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood so that they may no longer be like children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every kind of doctrine. Rather, they're to speak the truth in love. And Paul also says to Timothy that God's household uh, the church of the living God is a pillar and foundation of truth. You cannot have unity without truth. Truth has to be the foundation of unity. That's why falsehood and false doctrines are spoken so sharply against in Scripture. Because unity must be founded on the truth. God's truth can't be sacrificed, um, but it must be the foundation of, of unity. This isn't one of my favorite quotes, but this is a good quote from the Enduring Community. It says that the church is the support and protection of the very truth of God. Truth in the world and the lives of be believers has no stability if it does not have the church. The church is the support system of truth itself. So humility and patience, truth, also your presence. How can we have unity if we're not present? That, if we're, that there, is no, there are no solo, single Christians. We are 
bought by a price into a community. We need each other. We need each other's giftings. We need each other's different experiences. God has uniquely made each one of us to be living stones in this building that's called the church. We need each other. Last quote, but it's good, so I'm going to have to read it. Uh, Tony uh, Marita says this, God has given us a need for community. So he's given us a need for community, and he has given us the place where that need for community is met. And that's the church. He gives us a place where we belong, and now we need to commit to belonging, to show up for each other regularly, to show up for each other personally, to show up for each other prayerfully, that we might be on mission together, unified, that we are loved, equipped, and sent by God. And as we do that, God calls us to use our gifts. And that's the last thing, that God has given us gifts to be used for the, the unity of the church. In Ephesians 4, 16, Paul said, From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, it grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Each part. That means each one of us is a part of using our gifts for the, unity, for the unity of the church and ultimately for the glory of God. Each one of us has a part to play. God has gifted each one of us. The pictures we come to worship is we bring our gifts. We come to receive from the Lord and praise Him, but we bring our gifts and who God is as we come to worship Him. And so just like a bunch of ragtag college uh, hockey players brought whatever gifts they had and in six months worked and worked together to shock the world. They brought a nation together and they gave them some sense of hope. Just in a small way, they gave a small sense of hope to a nation that was needing hope. We belong to the king of the universe who has called us into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He has called us into a forever family, into a hope that this world needs. And so may our unity be the aroma of Christ. And may this church be a reservoir of grace and hope and truth for a thirsty world. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this unity, this unity that we're talking about, it's a grace and it's a gift and it's found in your church the church that's your bride, that you gave your life for, Jesus. And so, Lord, I thank you for the unity that you have bought for us. And by faith, may we live that out. I pray that you would bless North Cross. I pray that you would bless the churches in this community and that you would bless your church, Universal, and that we, in our unity, might be a blessing to the ends of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.